Hey everyone, welcome back to Tina Apologetics. Super excited to join us today to have Tim Howard invoking theism and Caleb Jackson. We'll be talking about my recent debate with Matt Dillahunty. So Tim, Caleb, what's up guys? So man, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm excited. Thanks. So hopefully if you're listening to this, you've listened to the debate. We're not going to play a lot of clips, if any. So I'd encourage you before you listen to this review, go listen to the actual debate. Um, but yeah, let's just dive into it. So before we get into like the meat, like we'll start with Tim and then go to Caleb. Like give me like 30 seconds or a minute. Like what are your initial thoughts about everything that transpired this past Friday? Start with me. Yeah, go with you. Start with you, Tim. Okay, yeah. So um, I think it was awesome because what you basically are doing is um, you are advancing the Swinburne agenda. Really what it is, is you gave a uh, Swinburne style, uh, very brief cumulative case preventing that in this debate setting. Um, and you were taking uh, a Bayesian approach to it, such as you have two criterion, you have uh, the intrinsic probability, and then you have the explanatory power. And so you went over intrinsic probability and then you went over explanatory power, uh, as you should do. Um, and as we do when we do these rival theory comparisons. Um, and then you started talking about things in which you think are more likely on theism. And what's really interesting is that, um, is that it, what I saw is it made Matt have to go piece by piece really having to think through these things. Matt doesn't often get Swinburne-esque or even Swinburneans or even trained Swinburneans um, pressing him on his atheism. And so I think it was, I thought it was a really interesting thing to see him try to grapple with a lot of these definitions, a lot of these concepts, uh, theoretical virtues, and all the content in which you presented. And I think it, from what, what it looks like to me, uh, it was more Matt having to really think through and grapple with these things rather than what a lot of people think Matt is famous for, which is like being able to, you know, uh, to show that these apologists are on shaky ground or something like that. And they should really think for the first time or whatever. Or they just, you know, uh, studied logic for a day, they'd be fine or something like that. You know, they really don't really have these beliefs or whatever. So I think that you brought that to the table and I think that's what happened. And I think it, it was... Uh, there's a lot of interesting things that Matt talked about and brought up. And so we'll get to that when we uh, go through the free flowing discussion here. But those are my initial thoughts. What about you, Caleb? Yeah, no, I, I don't have that much uh, divergences from what Tim said. I think that it's great that you did a Bayesian case. I, I prefer saying Bayesian than Swinburnian because I think it's just less syllables. But um, <laughs> certainly <laughs> Swinburne is, is uh, influential here. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that was a good approach. Uh, and the idea that we talk about what predictions does these and make or, or I guess, does it does a perfect mind make in the topic of the debate versus what predictions does the alternative hypothesis make? Um, so I think conceptually it was good. I will say I think um, through execution, I think I I would recommend that um, we you either should have had a longer opening or you could have narrowed down your points and elaborated on specific on a fewer points in more detail rather than giving a large quantity without really taking the time to extrapolate. And I don't say that as um, an insult to you because I know that you understand them and I know that you're very smart. But I think to a lay audience, especially to Matt's audience, who again hasn't probably been familiar with these arguments, I think explaining the step-by-step -step process almost like the tell me like I'm five kind of thing. And that's the, the, mm -hmm. I say this as someone who's had that same issue too, where it's like, hold on, stop, explain back why that's the case with this and this, this. So I think that's I think that's what was the um, confusion here. Cause I think Matt seemed to not understand why this was entailed. Because I think at one point it's like, we don't, why think that, you know, if you're granting that a disembodied, sorry, that a perfect mind wants this, that's true. 
but why why should we think that he does want this and why should we think that alternative hypotheses also would predict this those are the two major points that i think he was correct to bring up and i think in addressing those maybe where there was some lost uh things lost in rhetoric and matt's mm -hmm. very good at controlling conversation so that's that those are my initial mm -hmm. thoughts yeah i appreciate that it was definitely an interesting debate um i kind of left finished it and i was like i don't really know what to think of what happened because mm -hmm. like i felt like like I didn't feel a challenge. Like, like in, in in a sense of like I didn't walk away thinking like, wait, are these points wrong? Um, I did feel challenged in like what you said. Matt's an amazing speaker. Um, he really pushes you and controls the conversation. In that sense, he, he pushed me more than like any other conversation that I've done. Um, so yeah, the only I mean, person who would push you, the only person who would push you more than Matt would probably be Doug from Pine Creek. I would is the only person I think who would be mm. rhetorically about equivalent to that. But uh, yeah, he's mm. uh, he's very good at controlling the conversation, which is why. You got to give him some rope. And I say this as someone who has debated Matt Delante. Um, you have to give him some rope and be charitable. Like, okay. And, and you, and to be fair, you did do this a lot where you're like, that's a good point, Matt. I agree with you here. And then explain your position and then kind of get clarification questions. And I think that's, mm -hmm. I think it all comes down to communication and getting points across. Yeah. So the yeah. one thing I did really try to push him on was the evidence for God thing, which we might talk about in a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's good. So, Tim, I know you took notes. Um, so you want to, like, where do you want to start, like, this review? So, so he, yeah, no, thank you. So one, one thing I want to say real quick is that the difference between what you presented, Zach, and what Matt usually engages in or how Matt thinks about things is, is you want to be in the philosophy room. You want to be in the room where a discussion can go three hours, where basically you're going definition by definition, concept by concept, and you're teasing out where are our agreements, where are our disagreements, how can we bridge these disagreements? What are the underlying philosophical principles or ideas that are fueling our diverging opinions about where we're disagreeing on these said concepts, right? And, and that's what philosophers really want to do. And so... So you're more interested in that, right? And and that's really like if you're going to present a Swinburnian case, like it's gonna it takes a while to flesh it out. And and this is why people like Paul Draper, I think, is very respectable. He says, "Hey, listen, I don't do debates like this anymore, because because you just you can't do it like this, right? You can't mm -hmm. do it justice this way." Um, so kudos to you to trying to kind of you know find a sweet spot, right? The Goldilocks spot in, in having to do this in the debate format. Um, and so I think that's what it is, right? Like that's literally like at least what I'd be more interested in. I'm I'm not really interested in um, being extremely rhetorically strong. I want to mm -hmm. explore the other person's viewpoint um, enough to the point where we really, really, really see like where the disagreement's coming from. So I just want to say that, and I think that's like you guys are coming from two different areas in that. Um, and you know, Matt Matt usually has this you know initial barrier to entry skepticism that he he approaches his conversations with because he it's almost like this um like he doesn't want to be hit from an angle that he doesn't see right and so matt wants to be able to see all the angles like what is this person trying to do here it's almost as if i'm not mm -hmm. saying that matt is is um assuming ill intent but he is so keen on not granting things that maybe mm -hmm he there's more he could grant than he thinks and that you're not coming to this conversation trying to defend a tribe but rather you're actually trying to do good philosophy so that's my first point um 
So Matt has a problem with the concept of perfection. I, I, and because and, and, you were using perfect mind, right? And, and that's fine. Uh, that's what you, you know, that's what you prefer to say. Um, but he kept saying this like, oh, the debate isn't, is God more probable or is God the best explanation? And I don't know where he got that from because your little, your literal case is probabilistic. So <laughs> the question, like, like, if you want to say perfect mind is God, right? Which most people were thinking that's what you're doing. Then like, yeah, like the, it is about, is God more probable? Um, but he really, he really um, had a, a tension with the concept of perfection or perfect mind, right? And he went a long time. Uh, he he went a decent amount of time on that. And I, I, I found that pretty interesting because everything he was bringing up about perfection and his issues with it are like what you initially think about and ask, like before you've really studied it. And I'm not even trying to like like say it as in like oh Matt is like he's not learned and whatever so like don't even listen to him. But it's interesting to see that like yeah like I remember when I was first reading Necessary Existence by Proust and Rasmussen, and I was studying um, a lot of the academic literature on perfect being theism. I remember I was I was asking me my, myself these questions in the back of my head. Um, but when they really dive into the literature, you truly understand. The, the kind of rigorous, sophisticated philosophy behind um, the perfect being theist metaphysic, right? And so he thinks that, it, he made it sound like it's not on firm ground. And what's interesting is, is what he was bringing up or like these issues, these supposed issues aren't even really like trivial issues, right? Because like all you really need to do, like, like this, and this is how philosophy works. Like we stipulate all the time, right? So like, I, I just feel as though it's it can be straightforwardly answered. Like, yeah, like when I'm talking about perfection, what I, I'm talking about perfection in the axiological sense, so I'm referring to value. And I'm stipulating value in terms of like the highest concentration of positive qualities that you can have, right? Without um, like the highest concentration of, po of compossible positive properties, right? And then whatever you think that is, that's what a perfect entity is right and then we can have a further conversation about because perfect being theists they don't all agree what all of the uh positive properties are right some think that like omnisubjectivity is a positive property that needs to be included in a perfect being theist metaphysic and some don't some think that um um that um om omniscience to the degree of you know, knowing counterfactuals about freedom is a perfection. And some don't think that's perfection for other reasons, right? And so when we're talking about perfection, we just really need to understand like how, like how we're using it. But really what we're, what, we're, what we're saying is there is some, some purely primitive, unqualified, positive attribution here about this entity that I'm talking about. And then you can bring in whatever axiology, whatever you think is the best way to evaluate value, you can bring that into the conversation. So for Matt, it's like on, on prima facie, it seems like he's bringing up something that might be like, there might be an actual tension here, but really there's not. It just needs to be fleshed out more. It's like, it's like, yeah, like we just need to like talk about how we view value. And then what would that value look like if it was completely unqualified? Um, and so I didn't really find that to be like problematic at all for perfect being theists. I didn't find it to be a problematic for any perfect being theism ever really presented. 
Um, so that was my that's that's my first thought about his kind of gripe with perfection. Um, cause a lot of people are like, well, perfection subjective or whatever and stuff. And really what they mean is that people disagree on what they think perfection entails or what perfection epistemically predicts about itself. And that's mm -hmm. fine. We can have that conversation, but for your case to be coherent, you just need to stipulatively have your own understanding of it that lines up with everything else in your case for it to go through. So anyways, I'll leave it up to you guys to take the rest. Yeah, that's great. Caleb, what are your um, thoughts about all that? And you're on mute, just so you know. I can speak now. Uh-oh. Oh, okay. No, no. Uh, there's a there's a lot there. Um, so I don't, yeah, so I don't uh, really disagree with anything Tim said there. And I think Tim's right that the literature is very extensive and there's a lot of disagreements in terms of what entailments are there with perfect with the perfect being? I think most people would agree that geometric, uh, sorry, no limits on geometric geometry. So like spaceless, kind of timeless, this, these like general qualities. But when you get into like epistemic, can God know, can a perfect being know the future? Can it not know the future? Does it have middle knowledge? Can it know counterfactuals? Does it have um, omnisubjectivity? You know, the, these are things that I think are debated. Um, so I think what, what one needs to do is to start with, I think I said this earlier, what a perfect being, what, what what it means to be perfect, how we get those properties, the omni properties, and then how do we get from those omni properties to uh, what predictions we would expect this being to make. So, okay, God wants to make the universe with embodied moral agents. Okay, so then we would have to explain why did it, why why would why are moral agents valuable to know uh, more valuable than not moral agents? Why do they have to be embodied and so forth? So you can make those arguments, and there are arguments out there, but. I think just throwing it on there and just using the term embodied moral agent um, is itself a little bit premature. And I think it's very hard to do in a debate setting uh, unless you're going to do that, take that forward within an amount of time. Um, I think other points about, I do think that Matt's points about alternative hypotheses not fitting are correct in the strictest sense. And I know, I know you want to get into this when we talk about evidence. So I can hold off on this point if you want. Um, but that's just when we're comparing theistic probability, I'm sorry, theistic predictions with non-theistic predictions. So if you want to talk about, about the evidence in terms of what counts as evidence, what makes it more probable than not, um, we can do that if you'd prefer. Yeah, yeah, we can definitely see where we end up. I'm The one thing that was interesting that Tim brought up that I thought was what I really felt kind of leaving the conversation is thinking about like we we're almost like in different rooms um because the way i was trying to do it was like trying to have like a more like you know like swinburne and like having here's my theory let's compare it against other theories da, da, da. um and matt you know he's coming at it more from like the ground up um looking at you know like his kind of view of things where we're looking at more like a demonstration and spent a lot of time talking about demonstration in that debate. It's his favorite um, word, so. demonstrate, demonstration. I, I, uh, that part when we prepped you, and me. when we prepped you for that, I think I think I recall in the brief mm -hmm. preps we did for this, I mentioned he's going to ask you to demonstrate that because that's his absolute favorite term is to how do you know that? How do you demonstrate that instead of just assuming? It. And I don't think that's even a bad question, but I do. It, it shows that he has an ignorance with what that is, but we have to explain to him why that's entailed. Mm -hmm. So. I, I want to say something real quick and uh, briefly, and then we can get into a more extensive conversation about evidence. Um, you know, I, I, I've scanned the literature on confirmation theory, confirmational holism, 
um, how Bayesian confirmation theory has evolved since like the 80s and how we understand evidence today, how evidentialism works and things of that sort. Um, it's really fascinating. And it's and it's um, it's sad to me that this literature goes uh, um, overlooked or not even recognized when we have these conversations because it really it it. it it really clears up a lot of um, methodological issues, right? Um, the first thing I want to say is, um, from a Bayesian epistemology, specifically Bayesian confirmation theory, um, Swinburne and other theistic philosophers have noted that the predictions that theism makes depend on the nature of the being posited, right? And so it means that we can actually have like knowledge, like we can actually have like an idea and be informed about the predictions that a that a go certain God would make, right? Like it'd be weird to say that if there was such a thing, if it was a coherent idea that there is this all malevolent God, that it would make the same predictions or we couldn't know what predictions, uh, the differences in predictions that being would make over a perfectly good being. If you don't, even, if you, if you agree with me that like, yeah, like we obviously, um, can make we can obviously like separate and actually see the differences in what we would expect given those two things then um i think that straightforwardly then we can start to um um make predictions about what a all good being would make or um a being that has you know call like you know the omni properties right i i have i don't talk like that but i will for the sake of this discussion um and so for me when it comes to this idea that a perfect being, this seems to be the most non-trivial aspect of it. A perfect being seeks to be benevolent in any situation possible and will never be malevolent at all. So it's a probability of zero that, a, that this being will do a bad action. And we can always expect that this being will do a good action. What this means then in the Bayesian context is the, the outcome space, the axiological outcome space. So the outcome space of anything that is good, theism will always get the greater proportion of that outcome space, given what I just said. If a being will only do something that's good and will never do something that's bad, then if you have a dartboard and the dartboard is axiology, and you throw a dart at it, it's whatever it hits, it's going to hit something that's good because the whole board is the entire outcome space of value. And so this whole idea of, oh, like, what, like, like can we really expect moral agents, you know, given a, given a perfect being? I go, well, if we know that it will have, the theism will have the greater proportion of the axiological outcome space, then if you observe something as valuable as embodied moral agents, then theism has that as its evidence because it will have the greater proportion of that. So if you look at the ratio, the odds form of Bayes' theorem, right? Theism on top, naturalism on the bottom, or atheism on the bottom. Um, if the ratio is top-heavy or the fraction is top-heavy, it doesn't matter what naturalism has on the bottom. As long as it's top-heavy, theism has it as its evidence. So it's like, like, I just find these, I find this to be so unproblematic to the point where like, it's hard to see, like, like you have to keep edu like we have to keep talking about this and it's a very basic notion. Right. And so, um, I like the dartboard analogy because it's like, 
Yeah, like God will do good things. You observe good things. Therefore, it's more probable than it's then it's probable that God would do that than that we can through abduction, we can actually be like, okay, yeah, we have some reason. And we can identify the reason within the thing itself. Like take any feature of the world that you think is good. You have now just identified some reason why a perfect being or a good being would want that thing. Um, and so again, it's it's the nature of the being positive. Um, Brian Leftow says. Theism explains things relevant to its own ontology. So if theism posits an unsurpassably good moral being, and we observe moral beings, to me, it's so bizarre to say, oh, we can't say those moral beings are probable. My hypothesis, the content of my hypothesis literally has a moral being in it. Like, and there's a goodness about moral being. Like, I just, that to me is so obvious. Um, that it's hard to see why someone would detract from that unless they do something what Draper says as if there's some understated evidence, right? And so let's say that um, an embodied moral agent is an entailment, right? Um, and, um, and entailments are monotonic. Well, sometimes entailments can be non-monotonic when you, when, you, um, when you observe some evidence E, right? Let's say it's a body moral agent and it's entailed. But let's say that there's some evidence um, e, e prime, let's say. And E prime gives us a different context about that evidence. And E prime actually works to, uh, to actually works against what we initially thought about said evidence in E. Then, then that can present itself as a defeater for what we first thought was evidence. But that needs to happen. That, that's what you need to do to show that this isn't actually evidence. You can't just say, well, because you can't give me a particular specific intention or reason or why this should be privileged over something else, then you can't say it's evidence. That's not how confirmation theory works at all. Mm -hmm. That's not found in the literature. It's, method, it's methodologically bankrupt. Um, this is just some weird thing on the internet. Um, so, sorry, I get passionate about it and that's why I'm talking this way. Um, so the other thing is, um, is and, and by the way that's just the introduction to the evidence that section that we'll talk about later so i hope i primed you guys well for that um the second thing that matt goes on about is the um supposed unsurpassable difficulties in investigating investigating or demonstrating the existence of a perfect mind um and i find it interesting because he never really at least in the at least in the uh his first initial response to your opening, um, he made it seem like, how could we possibly demonstrate this? And, and things of that sort. And for me, I just look at the work of Joshua C. Jawadi, who was like, yeah, we do it through metaphysics. Here, boom, modality. Here, boom, grounding, you know, like, so anyway, um, I just find it interesting that I, I, I don't want to assume too much of what he's thinking but maybe he might have more of an empiricist idea of investigate and maybe he's not allowing for metaphysical demonstration and maybe he thinks that a metaphysical demonstration um is um invalid or doesn't have a good foundation or something or we should be weary of it or something like that but i'll just leave it to you guys i've talked for a long time i'm sorry go ahead all i would say is like one of the things i really struggled to understand 
was Matt's concept of evidence. Um, that's like like way back when we talked about Tim. Um, we talked a little bit about this debate. You talked about the moral agents test, so like looking at like moral agents and saying like they're more expected on theism than atheism. So one of the first things I did in that debate, if you go back and watch it, is I tried to bring that moral agents test out um, and like say like, hey, Matt, here's my Bayesian argument. I'm going to say moral agents are more expected on theism than atheism. Um, so there's some evidence like for theism from this. And, you know, Matt brought out different things like the problem of evil and divine hiddenness. But at first I thought he like agreed that there was evidence for theism. I thought he did. Um, towards the end of the debate, it seemed like he actually didn't agree. So, I mean, just go back and watch the debate and you can come to whatever conclusions you do on that. Um, Cause I'm still kind of unsure on what he was thinking there. Um, so I wanted to do that to show like, Hey, like, can we say like there is evidence for the existence of God? Um, so that was something I was a little confused about. And then the demonstration came up, stuff came up a lot later. And I was just like, I was like, how did we get here? Because we were talking about evidence. Um, and then he just brought up the demonstration thing. And that's kind of what I bring up there in terms of like the, the part on like evidence for God was like, I just left kind of confused on like, what, what's Matt's standard? Because at first I thought he agreed with like a Bayesian analysis. Like that would be some evidence, even if it's not good. And then, um, cause he asked like, sure. Like, then he was like, so what? Like we're asking like, does God exist? Not like whatever he said um so that's kind of what i got on the evidence side of things i don't know what you think caleb yeah so i think i can try to translate what i think matt is saying i know he mentioned he did mention empirical and logical demonstration so i don't know tim if he would count metaphysics i don't know how much matt knows about metaphysics or how much what his opinion on metaphysics are i'm not sure he's i'm pretty confident he's not very well read in that but i don't imagine that he um really I, I my guess is he probably wouldn't consider that demonstration or at least he would probably be skeptical about any kind of modality in demonstration in the first place he'd be like well how do you know this how do you like you know how do you demonstrate he, he really just likes to push it back um but when i think when it comes to evidence he if i remember correctly he granted that if we're defining evidence like that which makes my hypothesis more more likely then technically it is but it's not sufficient and i think his criticism and this is I think technically true epistemically is that it doesn't count as evidence if the if alternative hypotheses equally account for the data like and so the example he gave was just because we have a dead body doesn't mean the butler did it or it wouldn't necessarily be evidence the butler did it so just that alone it wouldn't it depends on the context now if i said the butler killed a person and we didn't have a dead body that would be very good evidence against the butler did it right because there'd be no murder um if we had a dead body and the butler was the only one in the house at the time, that would be pretty good evidence that the butler might've done it. But if the butler was in the room with 20 other people, the dead body is not itself good evidence for that. So it depends on does, is the hypothesis of him being dead more likely under the idea that the butler did it than other people. If there's other competing hypotheses that equally explain it, not really. Um, so it depends. So that that's kind of the, the thing it hinges on. Same with like the, uh, you know, I think he gave the pretty, standard atheist parody of like you know universe creating pixies like the fact we observe a universe is consistent with the idea that universe creating pixies did it but then when you go and do an internal critique of what it means to be a universe creating pixie and the metaphysics of that that wouldn't that that wouldn't take into a proper account of, of the other things we observe so you do have to take the evidence as a whole and i think that he did push back on some of the things you said about like you know um well if beauty exists if beauty is evident a predict under theism is an ugliness not predict under theism and if moral um if moral knowledge is expected of theism isn't moral disagreement uh also like isn't that also surprising that people would disagree with morals if if moral knowledge is that like wouldn't you expect that under naturalism for people to be confused and debate and kind of make up their own things so that's what i think it comes down to i also i don't know matt's opinion on moral 
Well, I know that he holds to, I think he's more of a pragmatist when it comes to morality in a sense that he, he thinks human flourishing, secular humanism is a standard, right? And so like it's wrong to hurt because it causes harm. But I don't know if Matt would argue that value exists like objectively, metaphysically. So my my concern is that if you if you didn't if you're just a complete value anti-realist, I feel like and I not I don't know if he is, but one could try to take apart the case to say there is literally no value in, in any given aspect of creation. Therefore, like the idea that God would want something it, uh, over another thing is completely incoherent because value isn't a real thing. It's completely subjective, mm -hmm. including and so God's subject might be completed for the hours. And so why should we expect that? Yeah, that's I think it's a pretty radical view to take. But is. you could, you could, yeah, because I think that's just like empirically, it seems like that's obviously not true, but. See, the, the, the interesting thing about this is this is what people always kind of think, which is that when we talk about value, we're not talking about the metaphysics of value, or, nor are we talking about metaethics. This is something that people get interesting. It's all normative, right? So it's a value theory. And the value theory it um, exists independently of whether of, of whether or not it's realism or anti-realism. It's that um, it's that you have a being which seeks to do good things. Um, now, um, if it is subjective, then um, then it is in a sense real or true according to the agent right this is true in accordance to the subject right mm -hmm. so if the subject god thinks that embodied moral agents are a good thing then even if that value assessment is subjective it still works because you're coming to the to the to the table of the discussion with a value theory that says there's something valuable about moral agents and so even but, if but it's that might be what he pushed that might be what he pushes back on though it's like why should we think that God would find moral agents. If, if, if it is completely subjective, I think what one could mm -hmm. say is why would God, why would God yeah. find embodied moral agents better than pink unicorns? Right. And of course and we would say, well, there's more value in that, but that, but isn't that appealing to a standard of value? That's not complete, just whatever the heck God wants. Like, I know you're not saying that, but I feel like that's, if you're taking a purely subjectivist view of, of so, value. So, yeah. And, and what that confuses though is Matt. Now this is no, now Matt no longer has a problem with God. Right. Now Matt has a problem with Zach's, axiology but then mm -hmm. what zach can do is he says if you have a problem with my axiology it doesn't really affect my argument because as long as my axiology is consistent with everything i've said then i've been able to make predictions right it's kind of like comparing models of quantum mechanics it's like it's like do strings do a better job than um than emergent phenomenon to explain uh to explain uh quantum gravity um we still have we still have work to do right and so it's it's in that saying is is that your problem isn't with quantum physics your problem is with whether or not strings is the right th theory to bring to the table or is it an emergent phenomenon or um or this kind of emergent mechanism thing you should bring to the table right does, does that does that make sense like that's like that's matt's objection and it'd be weird to object on the basis of quantum theory given um that michio kaku dis disagrees with uh, Sean Carroll. Um, so mm -hmm. that's the way I see it. And another part of it is, um, is that it's not, why would God value this over that? Um, that's the wrong question to ask because we don't ever ask that question whenever we do theories anywhere else. 
Um, that's not how confirmation theory works. We don't go, okay, human, humans evolved, uh, 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 humans share common ancestors with chimps. Um, and we don't, we don't keep pushing it back and go, well, yeah, but if that's going to be evidence, then, then why wasn't it from a snake line? And why wasn't the snake line from this line? And why wasn't it from that line? And, and things of that sort. And now you're getting into weird thought experiments about if we were riding the tape of life back to zero, will we get chimp lines again or something like that? It's like, no, it's like this observation uh, is, provides greater evidential support for this theory than that theory. And that's all we need. Um, and so you get into greater topics and discussions about whether or not um, we can allow for incommensurability or whether or not God just creates all value. The theist can totally hold that. Like, yeah, if it's a perfect being, he creates everything that's valuable. Then there's no problem. Then, then it's a probability of one will observe something valuable. It actually might even make the situation better. If God but then all value, but in that case, would embodied moral agents be more valuable than any other particular state of affairs that God wants to actualize? It, it, it's not about it's well that that that's in accordance with your with your value theory, right? Right. And yeah, so what exactly. Swinburne does, when what Swinburne does is he gives a kind of explanation about his value theory, right? So he goes, well, the reason why uh, it, moral agents can be moderately expected on theism is because moral agents have this particular unique ability that God doesn't even have. They're, not only are they able to make moral decisions, but they're also able to make wrong moral decisions. And they're able to take responsibility for their moral decisions in a way that's free to them. And so there's something unique about this. And then therefore, God would be motivated with, with, with non-countervailing motives to bring this about. And so it's always, um, it's always these, these, these conversations are always abductive, right? We're always going from observation, um, and then we look at the hypothesis, right? And I just think that it's, it's not entirely irrelevant in terms of like grander philosophical discussions, but it doesn't affect the hypothesis of theism um, if we don't address the question, well, what, moral, moral agents, why not something else? So, uh, because, yeah. so yeah. Yeah, and I agree. What Sorry, I, go ahead, Zach. I was going to transition. So if you want to like finish this part off, Caleb, um, go ahead. No, yeah, I, I think I agree with what Tim's saying here. So I, 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 I probably should ask, Tim, do you hold the Swinburne's view of uh, – uh, why I, I think I understand this view where do you think that God is himself the grounding of value or do you think that value is a axiology and God in his omniscience just knows what is perfectly valuable and wants to do it? I think that value, I think, I, I do think that there are true propositions about value. And, and so I think that God just, yeah. yeah. So I think that God just apprehends them. Okay. Okay. Um, I agree with that. I agree. I agree with that. So you don't think it's a, you, you don't think that he has, to, he himself has to be the grounding of that. So I think that that makes sense then because yeah, because that yeah. way, that way God is consistently applying his, um, his knowledge of what is valuable in his creation. And he's yeah. not just making, he doesn't, he's not the arbiter of what is valuable. He just is the one who knows he, he's just all, all wise and knows what is valuable. So that's why you yeah. have him doing this and that, and I, so I agree with that. But if someone were to say that God completely decides what is valuable, then I don't have to see, I, then at that point you really couldn't predict what God would do because even if we had a world where there is no defeat condition and horribly evil, maybe God finds that valuable. Of course, and, you know, I, I, we, we don't think that's coherent because we think that's obviously not true for us, but if someone, you know, if someone was just say God's value can be completely different than what we value, 
there, there, it does, there, does, there is a little hidden premise in it that what we find to be valuable has to be consistent, with, at least partially, with what God thinks is valuable. Otherwise, we can't make those predictions. And I think that's right. that's a fine assumption. So, but that's yeah, that's what we're doing. Go ahead, Zach. What I'd like to do is, it's you have like another like twenty minutes left or so. Um, I feel like this conversation has been super like philosophically like like at a high level. Um, and what I'd love to do here is like thinking about the audience that listened to the debate. Um, probably not a lot of them are on the same level as like Tim and Caleb. Um, in terms just of Tim. Like, I'm, I'm like, Tim, rigor. Tim is um, Tim is way above where I am metaphysically. So, <laughs> and yeah, I know I, this, Tim talks a lot of times. I'm like, what is this guy talking about? Like, I'm not there. Um, I'm crazy. So what I'd like to do is is try to bring it down to like thinking about like Matt's audience. Um, because I really I really love Matt and I love his audience, and obviously I disagree with him on a lot of things. But I'd love to try to bring this. Um, I don't want to say bring this down, uh, but bring, like just bring this to like trying to reach like that audience and thinking okay. about like because um, one of the things I feel like I did very poorly at debate is like reaching like um, his audience because I, I looked at the comments and you know comments are a great hallmark of who won um, and I was like oh it just kind of <laughs> looks like the comment section of any Matt Dillahunty debate um, so yeah just with that in mind like where do you think like when we're talking about like if we're gonna keep this like talking about like the more I think. Mm, I mean, there's a couple of spots you could take this. One of the things that I feel like uh, I didn't do a good job communicating with was the idea of what is evidence and like how we could use this like a, as a case for God. Um, so yeah, what do you think about that? Like, what do you? I'll leave it to either one of you. Like, how do we kind of bridge this gap at like a more like from like a more like going from the bottom up instead of the top down? Okay, so yeah. Um, that honestly, I'm glad Zach, I just went ahead real quick and looked at the comments and, um, I'm so sorry. I know. Um, <laughs> I, I literally read them for the first time about five. Well, I read them like right after it, And then I read them again today for the first time, like five minutes before we did this. I was like, I know that it's going to, regardless, it's nothing. So I always, I have a bad habit of always checking the comment section after I any know. like show or, or debate I've done because I just care that much. And I'm just so interested. And luckily, usually when I'm on there, they're usually pretty positive. It's atheist channel. So I'm trying to trying to bridge the gaps there but uh yeah, i was called, nice. i think i think my favorite insult so far has been i am a nauseating philosophical bloviator that doesn't know when to stop talking so uh i, ca I carry that one with me with a sense of pride uh, i mean <laughs> is i guess he really wrong no uh, no, com no comment <laughs> <laughs> to, but, trick to, to, to plot twist on the one who wrote the comment right <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yeah, um, secret account yeah yeah exactly uh, so what's funny is um sorry okay i'll get my thoughts in line here so yeah so reaching matt's audience okay so one thing i i think would be good is um is kind of getting to the foundations of really where the conversation is talking about because and I just checked the comments real quick, and that, actually, this is pretty good. So I think, Zach, what they're missing in terms of your analysis of um, your case for theism is that um, you're not, in a Bayesian case, it's holistic. And so mm -hmm. you're not just looking at the likelihoods. Um, rather, you're looking at it in terms of, the entire criterion you would use to assess a theory. So you are more interested in not only the likelihood, like the explanatory power, but rather um, theism is the most theoretically virtuous explanation of this data. 
So it does not only does it explain the data, but it explains the data in a way that it satisfies all these other criteria. And so when they have a problem with you with the butler, it's what Matt is saying is, well, well, I have equally consistent explanations like the butler for um, to explain the data. But what you're saying is, yes, what you need to do is obviously you need to posit an entity to explain some data. But how we discriminate on the basis of which entities we posit is, do they satisfy the entire criteria? And so that's why Swinburne, when he presents his four criteria, he's looking at background knowledge, he's looking at explanatory power, he's looking at scope, and he's looking at simplicity. And so not only do we want the fewest amount of entities, but we, uh, we want um, entities in which are fit with our background knowledge, um, um, have, a, have a, um, a proportioned scope to the data we're, we're, we're talking about, and they are the kind of entity that is able to explain the data. And then we can look at whether or not these other entities actually satisfy that criteria. And so you're looking at this holistically. You're saying, I want the most theoretically virtuous explanation because or else we can just, you know, like, like the whole Pixies example, I can come up, I can posit infinite entities with infinite properties doing different things to explain this one data over here. But that tells me nothing of whether or not it satisfies simplicity, background knowledge, or scope. Um, so I think that the audience kind of missed that part of your debate. I was able to see it because obviously I'm entrenched in these kinds of discussions, but someone who isn't, who hasn't read a lot of the literature or listened to a lot of how these discussions function might not see that. So that's the first point I want to bring up. I have other points, but I'm going to let the rest of you guys jump in. Yeah, go ahead, Caleb. What do you think? I was just going to say, Tim is basically saying he understood his point because he's smarter than most of Matt's audience. No, I'm kidding. Oh my God. <laughs> no. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Don't, don't. Tim uses fancy philosophical comments. words that are just like word salad. So you yeah, know, yeah. He, Tim salad. has big words I, and he thinks I he's word smart. word salad for lunch. Tim thinks that he can use fancy words like metaphysics to, to get around the question of who created God because <laughs> he can't demonstrate it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would, uh, gosh, the fact that Tim always goes before me, I feel like I'm having to, to ride his tail here. But um, I, I guess if I was talking to the average person on that channel, or even to Matt, I would probably try to go like, okay, what do we mean by perfect? Um, what, I, I, you probably would have to do some kind of contingency argument to get to the idea of why this needs to be perfect. And I know that you did do that, mm -hmm. Zach, with the limits, but I don't think it was it wasn't very, i should have developed yeah. that more you could do it you could do it you could do a 25 minute opening with just the contingency argument and not even <laughs> going to the other stuff so when you have that plus all the entailments plus all that in into one in one like 10 minute setting it's it's i think almost unmanageable mm -hmm. and so now what could have happened is that you all could have discussed these points and you could have elaborated and say okay I understand why you're yes. asking that here's how i would demonstrate that but unfortunately it didn't get to that because i think there were quibblings about Matt's definition of evidence and about um, other stuff like that. And I think that's what was, was frustrating. So I think there was a lack of communication. And I think Matt didn't necessarily seem like he wanted to go down the route of looking at um, the, like when he brought up quantum mechanics, he hated that. He was like, well, we're not, neither of us are experts in the field. So should we even talk about that? And I don't think yeah. the point that you're making is that like, Oh, I understand. You're just saying that there are, are different models 
probably what 10 different interpretations and i don't i'm not saying that i understand them but there can be rational disagreement in in Mm -hmm. that area so that's what that's the point you were making but matt was like oh i thought you're just gonna make a argument from quantum mechanics even though you don't understand it and that's not what you were trying to say Mm-mm. so yeah it's a communi- it's definitely communicable for sure and that's why i think defining terms well is good you know defining perfection um is good and defining why god's values should match up with ours why we would we, we take observations we make and then work them back which is what we do in science so all of that is important and um yeah i think this was just a hard i think i appreciate the uniqueness of the approach you took in the topic but I think this is really hard to do in the, in the conditions you had. And I think that yeah. the, the terminologies of a uh, perfect mind got kind of, uh, kind of extrapolated because you could just do like, what is a mind? Like that's itself a whole other, mm-hmm. yeah. Cause he was like, you know, what's the difference between a perfect mind versus a mostly perfect mind versus all this stuff? Like how would we, and so it could have been is the thing. Well, given arbitrary limits an imperfect mind, we would ask, why is it that it's imperfect and not perfect? Like, why is it that it has, these qualities that are lacking and so yeah that could have been how it could have been how it could have been answered but that's interesting because matt you just made me realize just now matt seemed to understand that point when he made his argument yeah this is interesting he might have contradicted himself maybe Um, he did yeah but 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 he seemed to make this point when he said he and i also I, i also wanted to talk about this i hope we have time but um he uh made an objection about he thinks it's just this weird idea like like that god would create like why would a perfect being create like 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 he really had a hard time imagining the reasons that would justify that right and another because because what he said during that is the reasons he gave for his objection is that well a perfect being doesn't lack anything so it doesn't need to create i'm like wait a minute so if you're going to say that a a perfect being doesn't need to create because it doesn't lack anything but then you over here you say well then how do we distinguish what's perfect from non-perfect you just said it and yeah. it doesn't lack anything. And he, yeah. And I think that, so he's basically, although I don't think he knows the term, he's basically doing the argument from non-God objects, which I know Tim Howard did a recent TikTok on. So, you know, follow him on, <laughs> follow uh, Invoking on Theism TikTok. on TikTok, by the way, to, to do a shameless plug. plug. But, not and this was actually, this I actually was having this conversation the other day because I thought, I didn't think it was like a persuasive argument, but I thought it was a really interesting question where last couple of days it was bothering me in terms of why did God create, right? And so I, what, how it was explained to me in the way that I think I understand it, and Tim can correct me on this if I'm wrong, is that God is separate from his creation. So it's like when we're asking, like, God is perfect. And so if God makes anything else, now you have an imperfect thing with a perfect thing. Well, why do you even need that? And it's like, well, first of all, God's perfection is not affected by making something outside of himself. It's not as if, like, God is absorbing this and he's gaining more power by creating more and he's going up like, no, no, no. It's not like you're just adding to infinity. It's separate. Um, but uh, I think I lost my train of thought. Oh, but like, but it's also the idea of, I think what happens is we think of like a possible world in which God exists in this possible world by himself. And I think the problem with that is that it's acting as if like the possible world is like transcendent above God to where um, God is not the actualizer of this world. So if God is the only thing that exists in this world, that is by his own choice. It's not because, this is like the meta. He, this is the metaphysical mm-hmm. inevitability that he's stuck in. God is God by choosing not to create is himself actualizing a state of affairs. God choosing to create is actualized in other state of affairs. But in the second example, God choosing to create actualizes a valuable state of affairs, whereas God not choosing to create does not actualize any other valuable states of affairs. So I don't know. I mean, you could argue that it's 
almost entailed that God would create. I'm hesitant to say that, but it's not because he's lacking himself. It's just because God not creating versus creating. Um, one of them is a valuable state of affairs outside of him. One of them is not, or, or at least less valuable. We can say less valuable, but it's, but so I, I think the difference is people forget that they think God existing by himself and no other creation is like distinct from, they forget that God himself is actualizing no other creation. Like that is the state of affairs. And so God has to be right, actually in some state of affairs. Yes, that's that's the point that I got confused on until that was explained to me. It was like, okay, because people want to think, oh, God's perfect. You only have perfect. Oh, now we have perfect and imperfect. That's worse, or it's not as good. It's like, no, because God being by himself is still a state of affairs he's actualizing. It's not like this thing that's transcendent that happens to be the case that he's working around. That's that's the distinction, I think. Yeah, yeah that, that's actually really good. What, what I also want to say is I thought of this um, – illustration to help demonstrate um, the point that um, it's, there's this idea that if something is perfect, um, the only way in which it can create anything or produce anything or the only reason why it would is because it lacks something. It, it creates out of lack. But, le but let's just say, le this is the illustration. You know, let's take someone who is a billionaire and he does not lack financial stability in any sense of the word um has enough money for you a bit he's a billionaire right is the billionaire so this illustration the, the example here is the billionaire goes you know i've made a lot of money and, I, and i've been in corporate um circles for all my life what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna dedicate myself to a life of service to those who are poor is the billionaire going out into lesser financial circumstances doing so out of lack or is he doing so out of abundance is the billionaire downgrading because he's choosing to no longer live with with um with monetary elites but rather with those who are poor well, no, he's doing so because he has the resources and abundance to live among them in terms of service, right? And so what this, what this, is, what this should be um, um, demonstrating here is that um, when you have a certain set of circumstances that are, that are quote-unquote better than other circumstances, something within those better circumstances choosing to be a part of lesser circumstances isn't a lesser valuable state of affairs um if that thing is a, is an abundance um and so what you would need to do is you would need to have an underlying axiological principle that tells you that this is wrong that this is less valuable right and so i i, I think all of us would see it as supremely valuable if a billionaire chose to spend the rest of his life in service to the poor but he's not doing so out of lack. He's doing so out of abundance. So that's the way I see it with God, which is that it's not a lesser valuable state of affairs when God chooses to create uh, things that aren't perfect because God out of abundance is unaffected, uncorrupted, and has the resources to love and maintain lesser uh, uh, um, Im imperfect beings. But it's not a lesser valuable set of circumstances. They're just imperfect. And so God creates out of abundance because God has the resources to, not because he needs to gain something. And so, so this is also why I think 
that theism, perfect being theism, has greater explanatory power than some of these Eastern idealist philosophies that says that, you know, the the universe created things and created um, uh, mental subjects because it wanted to experience um, reality in a variety of different ways. Well, to me, that sounds like it lacks something, right? It, it doesn't know what reality uh, uh, what reality is like unless it diffuses itself into various subjects. Uh, and so on theism, you actually have um, the best example of abundance because God is doing so because simply to share goodness, just as the billionaire wants to share his goodness with those who are lesser fortunate, but it's not a less valuable state of affairs. So that, yeah. Yeah, Caleb, I'd love to transition to one last thing, but Caleb. Yeah, well, no, no, I, so I have, I have actually a couple of more technical questions, Tim, but I want to, we can do this after the, the stream because I, I don't want to bog this down for the audience. I think we can move on, but I'll keep that in note because I, I had a couple of things I wanted to ask Tim on that. But. Okay, yeah, let's do that. I wanted to look at one more thing. Um, so again, like trying to like reach mass audience here. Um the evidence and standards of evidence seemed like a big thing that's part of the debate. Then the other big thing was the demonstration thing. Like it kind of came up and then it went away and then it came back. Um, what do you think about like Matt and demonstration and all this stuff? And let's let Caleb go first. Cause I feel like Tim's always been leading. So before Tim steals everything, Caleb's going to stay. Um, Caleb, go ahead. What did you think of this section? I'm sorry. What was the question again? With like the dem like we talked a lot about demonstration of God and what would that mean and things along those lines. So oh okay, yeah. Well, so he brought this up to me. I'm just going to use my example because this is a just because in my experience. So he brought this up to me in our debate on the resurrection about how would you demonstrate the supernatural, right? And in the book that I'm still working on, which hopefully I'll finish it within I don't know another year or so, but it's long. Um, that like, how, how do we get from the gap? You know, it's, it's the new gap problem. Cause usually in most theistic premises, we have to first establish the data and then we have to establish why that is better explained under theism. Right. So for, when I was talking to him about like, okay, how would you demonstrate something supernatural? So as an example, in the miracle examples I gave, it was like, okay, first you would have to establish that it is not compatible, or at least not very highly and likely under the current laws of nature that we know and current regulars know and that it's uh best explained under theism and that it's primarily within a theistic context so we don't have these happening outside of religious context which increases the probability of it being a theistic explanation and so you have to compare these with explanatory power explanatory scope right like if an omniscient being could do miracles you'd expect miracles a pretty wide variety within amongst various diseases and stuff and it's simpler whereas if you're going to posit several different natural laws that we don't know yet you're going to have to independently say these affect things and they also only happen in religious context it has a lot more assumptions and a lot more ad hoc deviations so that's an example empirically how you could do that with that particular argument so when we go back to what you were saying in terms of like okay so how would we demonstrate uh, a perfect mind in that case i think we would have to go and do what you essentially did say here's what we would expect given a perfect mind and i think that's what he was skeptical i i think that he when you asked him i think he granted that if it were the case, if it were the case that this data was more expected under the unembodied mind hypothesis versus the not unembodied mind hypothesis, that would be some evidence. Now, you have to balance that with potential counter evidence. You have to look at um, why is the case that this is more expected and why is it the case that the other one is not expected. So you have to conflate all of that um, and simplicity, as you said, as well. So it's a combination of different things. But I think working backwards is good and saying 
saying, here's what we, how, how do we define supernatural? What is, what qualities that entail? And okay, given that those qualities, what that entails, what we expect from that and how do we differentiate that from a naturalistic one? Because if you make it unfalsifiable to where a supernatural thing can be literally anything and you can just keep adding auxiliary hypotheses, then at that point, it's not a better explanation than what we already know exists. So that's why the universe making pixies isn't a good example. Because although, yes, it would explain the universe, you would have to talk about what does it mean to be a pixie? Does that mean they have wings? If so, like, are they arbitrarily limited by space, by space and time? What make, what, what is it the case? Are they omniscient? You have to ask all these questions in your model. We're not just taking evidence in isolation. We have to look at the whole theory, right? So that's, mm -hmm. that's why one argument, you can't just say this one piece of evidence is good if the whole model is, it is still lacked explanatory power. So yeah. that's kind of the, the broad way I would say it. That's great. Tim, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, it's um, kind of going back to what I was saying earlier, which is like, yeah, we're looking for the most theoretically virtuous explanation. And, um, and so we have an explanatory criteria, right? Um, and, and, that, and that can delimit what hypotheses um, will be more probable, um, given some set of data or something like that. And so for example, like, um, you know, this is what, what Swinburne does is he says, okay, like, if I'm going to take some set of data, right, the data is going to be act, uh, is going to be, let's say, embodied moral agents. And he's going to say, okay, well, if I have this four explanatory criteria, then what kind of entity, what kind of hypothesis will allow us to expect this data while it satisfies the criteria? And he goes, okay, well, I need to posit some entity with some properties, right? Um, that's what you need to do. Um, and so it's going to have to at least have the power to bring it about. Well, then you go, okay, well then, but what would be the simplest explanation given that it has the power to bring it about? Well, well, if I have no countervailing reasons to think that I should add any kind of um, specifications to its power, we're just going to say that its, its power is unqualified. So then you get omnipotence, right? We're going to say, okay. Um, but then what does omnipotence mean? Well, omnipotence gives you, and then he starts to entail it, right? He goes, he goes from omnipotence to knowledge and the conjunction of the two gives you goodness. And then you go, oh, okay, well, then if we're going to explain in terms of those properties, well, it seems that embodied moral agents are a good thing. Okay, well, then this hypothesis makes sense given this. And so now I have a simple hypothesis. I'm able to explain it. Does it fit with background knowledge? And you can start to get into to that stuff. And then you're like, okay, well, then let me go look at some alternative hypotheses. And what he wants to do is he wants to look at it in terms of the prior probability of the evidence, right? So he's going to say, well, what's the prior probability of just observing embodied moral agents? And because and, he's going to say that's going to be the negation of a hypothesis. And he's going to say, well, then you get into conversations of what's going to inform the prior probability. Well, the prior probabilities must be informed by some higher order background uh, explanatory theory. And that could either be um, uh, a posteriori or a priori. Um, if he's going to say that if it's a posteriori, then it's just going to be a brute empirical fact that you have embodied moral agents. But that doesn't explain anything. That keeps it very surprising. You have uh, a mystery that's uh, still, that's not an explanation. So theism gets rid of that, uh, that mystery. But if it's a priori, then you have some like metaphysical kind of naturalism background that says, well, uh, there's like a disposition to bring about moral agents. But then you ask, okay, um, why does it have a disposition to bring about moral agents? Well, that's just the way the laws work. And then Swinburne's going to say, 
Well, I can get rid of that bruteness because I can say because it's good and omnipotence and omniscience gives you goodness. And then that gives you the idea that it would only do something that's good. So this is how you can do, this is how you can work with the explanatory criteria and, and do that. Right. Um, and so really what it is, it's just understanding the philosophy of science. And this is why Swinburne spent decades understanding the philosophy of science before he ever started publishing the philosophy of religion. And I think it really helps. So like, just read the philosophy of science. Mm. Well, I think this has been super great. Um, where do we want to start to right now? Let's, let's close this off. Um, so mm -hmm. Tim or Caleb, whoever wants to go first, just kind of leave like your final thoughts and anything. Caleb, you go first. <laughs> final thoughts, I think, are that uh, I'm excited. I'm sure Matt will make a atheist debates review within the next few days of the of it. So I'm excited to see how that goes. Um, not to brag, but he did do two videos on me. So yeah, I, I think I have that privilege that I don't know if any other debater he's done that at that. But um, yeah, I, I'm curious to see his thoughts on it. And I, I, I'm guessing that he probably won't reflect on most of the stuff that we've said because I doubt he'll see this video. But mm -hmm. um, I think that overall, to summarize, I think your approach is very good. And I think we are all on the same page. I think in hindsight, if we could go back, maybe we would have tried to narrow it down. Maybe we opened it tendously. Tim um, Lefton is back. Oh, oh, there we go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and that we would try to make sure that we're explaining our entailments and, so, and, and demonstrating, quote unquote, in his language, why goodness is a better explanation than bruteness, right? So that that's how I would end. And I think that overall, your uh, the concept of, of your the concept of your opening statement was very good. And so I think that was a very highbrow, sophisticated approach that very few people have actually taken with Matt. So. Yeah. 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 Do you have anything you want to add here, Tim? No, I, I agree with everything, man. That was, it was uh, a good job putting yourself out there like that and, um, and trying to uh, raise the bar of the discussion. Yeah. Well, I appreciate both of you guys coming on and I appreciate Matt for doing the debate and yeah, I hope people find this edifying and like the whole goal of like having conversations like this isn't like to like slam dunk on anyone, but more to just like further the conversation and keep talking and asking questions. So yeah, that's that. Tim, Caleb, thank you for joining me. Really appreciate you guys and your time. There'll be links down below for how people can follow you and connect with you. Um, though if you have been following this channel, I'm sure you will know Tim and Caleb by now. Um, and that's it. This is a Hina Project. If you're new, be sure to like, subscribe, all that fun stuff. Um, and if you value what we do, uh, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. Project. You can join for as little as a dollar a month and support goes a long ways. That's it. God bless, and we'll ca catch you next time.